0: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 113. This episode, we start off with a mea culpa. On March 17th, a user by the name of Steps57, gotta love iTunes names, left a review in which he called me out on an error, and I just wanted to address it. During several episodes, I believe I have been using the possessive form of Victoria Cross, saying Victoria's Cross, as in the cross that belongs to Victoria. This is, of course, incorrect, and it's just the Victoria Cross. I don't know where I picked up this problem, but it's been present since the beginning of the podcast. It was all a huge mistake, and I'll try to do better in the future. Also this week, I had the pleasure of attending the United States National World War I Centennial Commemoration on April 6th, which is the day that I am recording this. It was held at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri, which, as I've mentioned before, is about a three-hour drive from where I live. I enjoyed the ceremony quite a bit, and did a good job of showcasing the effects of the war on America, how the country came to be involved, the hand, hand-wringing that occurred during the first few months of 1917 as an answer was sought for the should we or shouldn't we question, and finally the problems within American society, like discrimination, segregation, and racism, that were all too present in 1917 America, and how groups affected by it tried to rise above the hate and service of their country. It is now available online for anybody to watch. Beware that it's about 4 hours and 30 minutes long. There's some pretty hefty stretches of downtime that can be skipped. My final comment on that is that B-2 bombers, one of which flew over us at the end, is, are way quieter than I expected. Also, I would like to reiterate that the museum in Kansas City gets my highest recommendation, and that I should once again be attending the symposium there in November. My trip there last year has greatly influenced my episodes for later this year, and I hope that this year's will do the same. I know it is early to consider such things, but early bird registration is open, and any if anybody plans to attend, let me know. The first drink is on me. As we bring it back to today's episode, though, this is the third episode on the Romanian campaign, or as I like to call it, the first part in the two-part episode, called Romania's no good, very bad time. Last episode, the Romanians had invaded Transylvania, advanced about 100 kilometers from all sides, and then did precisely nothing. While they waited, the Germans, Austrians, Bulgarians, and even some Turkish troops prepared their counterstroke, which would fall upon them in two forms. The first would be a strike by Mackensen in the, and the Bulgarians from the south. This would target the Dobruja region, which was the area along the Black Sea coast, between the Danube River and the sea. This had been taken from Bulgaria during the First Balkan War, and was full of ethnic Bulgarians, and was absolutely number one on their list of demands after the war was over. This attack would be completely unexpected by the Romanians, who believed that the Bulgarians would be occupied by the Allied forces in Salonika. They also believed that they would have far more Russian help than they did. While neither of these assumptions would prove to be true, it should not have resulted in what was about to happen in Dobruja, and it would start with the siege of the fortress city of Turkkai. When this attack was initially successful, it would cause the Romanians to massively overcorrect, pulling troops away from their lines in Transylvania to send them south. This would perfectly set them up for the Austrian and German attack as the dominoes in the Romanian war plan began to fall. The second half of this episode will discuss the attacks of Falkenhayn’s Ninth Army against those weakened lines. We start with the attacks in the south, though. Mackensen planned to use the Bulgarian 3rd Army to attack into Dobruja, and with its 2.5 Infantry Division, 1 Cavalry Division, and some German detachments to hopefully make some good progress. These troops had not were not drastically better than the Romanians that they faced, except for the fact that they were bolstered by certain bits of German assistance. The Germans would do this multiple times throughout the war with their allies. They would come in, they would bring a commander, and instead of them giving a bunch of infantry, they would instead provide support troops. This meant that these units had German aircraft, communications, transportation, machine guns, heavy artillery, items of this sort that were that the Germans were able to provide in great numbers, and it could turn the units that without them wouldn't have had a lot of punching power into some real heavy hitters. These items were also what made the German divisions so much more potent than, say, the typical Romanian or Russian division. In providing it as support for their allies, they were able to give them an edge over their enemies. In this case, that enemy would be the Romanian Third Army, which was responsible for defending the entire southern front, much of which was anchored on the Danube. To do this, they had three infantry divisions and some cavalry. However, almost all of them were considered second class. They had received cast-off units and equipment, with much of the infantry being of the lowest readiness level, which meant very little training and desperately few officers. Those in Dobrugia also found themselves in an area that was heavily Bulgarian in terms of ethnicity. This meant that the area probably felt more like enemy territory than friendly territory. Their commander was General Aslan, who, had, who was considered one of the best Romanian generals. However, in this case, he would not acquit himself very well. These troops also expected Russian help, however it would not arrive in time to assist them in the initial attacks, but it would arrive later on. The centerpiece of the Romanian defense of Dobruja rested on the fortress city of Turkukai, which lay on the Danube just a few kilometers from the border. This city had been built up over the years, and had been heavily improved as a fortified zone in the years before the war, with the help of Belgian engineers, who brought their experience from the creation of places like Liège, Antwerp, and Marberge, which were also fortified cities. Around this city there were 15 main centers of resistance, with both primary and secondary lines of resistance. However, the same mistakes would be made in the defense here as had been made in 1914 at the Belgian fortifications. Namely, that while the fortifications were quite strong, there was not enough thought given to the role of mobile defense units in between the structures. There was just not enough Romanian heavy artillery available, which made the entire complex vulnerable to bombardment as well. It had been shown, however, that under some pretty rough conditions, motivated and properly led troops could hold these kinds of positions for surprisingly long periods of time, just ask the French. In this case, neither of these facts would be true, and the troops were both poorly led and low on morale. On the other side of the attack were the Bulgarians, many of which had lived in this area or just across the border before 1913, when they had immigrated to Bulgaria so as not to live in the newly Romanian territories. Going back to Dobrugia to try and liberate it from the Romanians probably felt like a liberation party for their homeland, which is probably the best motivator that I can think of for soldiers. They were led by many officers who had fought on the Serbian and Macedonian fronts, some of which had also served in the Balkan Wars before 1914. This combination of morale and leadership experience would bring the Bulgarians to success. On the morning of September 2nd, the Bulgarian and German troops approached the advanced outposts around the city. The defenders unwisely decided that the best course of action was to quickly give up these positions and retreat to the primary line of defense. This would give the attackers the next few days to prepare for their assault on the next line of defenses. The assault would begin on September 5th, and in some areas the Romanians performed surprisingly well. There were even a few cases in which the Bulgarian attackers suffered over 50% casualties. However, these areas were few and far between, and for the most part the Romanian defenders melted away from the sustained artillery barrage and the Bulgarian infantry. It took less than a day, and the Romanians were already pushed out of all but two of the 15 forts in the primary defensive line, and they fell back to the second line, which was an older and far more primitive line of fortifications. The original orders from the Romanian high command was that the city had to be held at all cost, to the last man, and they hoped that they would have time to speed reinforcements south before the city was captured completely. This would have allowed the Romanians to launch counterattacks to hopefully recapture anything that had already been lost. But this was just not how it was going to work out. The Bulgarians would attack the next day, at which point the Romanian army simply evaporated. One officer would recall that, quote, "...the confusion was indescribable." Deafening noises as troops ran desperately across fields with wa- while wagons, two or three abreast, jammed the roads racing at full speed of the horses." Just a few hours after the attack began, 25,000 men were captured along with countless pieces of artillery and other equipment, none of which the Romanians could replace. The fall of the city would accomplish far more than the Germans and Bulgarians could have hoped for. It caused the three generals to be removed from their Romanian commands, and even if these generals had not done well, this just increased the amount of confusion in the Romanian ranks. To go along with this change in command, the Romanians also decided to bring troops from the north, which would greatly weaken their defenses there, and they would be greatly missed when the Austro-German attacks began just a few weeks later. To replace Aslan as commander of the 3rd Army was Alexandru Averescu. Averescu had been in command of the 1st Army in its attacks in the north, but he was now brought south to try and contain the Bulgarian advance. He was a strong advocate for a halt to the advances in the north, which would allow all effort to instead be focused on attacking south, and he would find himself in command of this exact action. Overall, this was not a bad idea in theory, and in fact, it was what the Romanian if it's what the Romanians had done when the war started, it may have succeeded. They could have easily just defended the mountain passes in the north and launched all of their men south, but they didn't. Now that they were trying to reorient their forces of their entire army while a war was on, it, was, it turned out to be no easy task. For the southern front to be successful, it had to get a few things right. First of all, the attack had to be launched before the Bulgarians were able to continue their attack. The further they moved into the country, the worst. It also had to be launched before the counterattack in the north could materialize from the Germans and Austrians. The Romanians believed that they had time to launch their attack before either of these two things happened. They were wrong. While the Romanians were still getting ready to attack the Bulgarians, would continue their advance into Dobruja, pushing back the Romanian and now the Russian defenders as well, and also several thousand fleeing refugees, all in front of their advancing armies. The advance had begun to slow though, not due to the defenders, but instead due to the fact that the Bulgarians had already accomplished all of their goals. Their objective in the war was to take back areas of Dobruja they had lost during the Balkan Wars, and by late September they had done that. Because of this, the desire of the Bulgarian commanders to continue forward was reduced. It did not help that Mackensen found the Turkish troops under his command both poorly supplied and trained, meaning they were far more less useful than hoped. These two facts combined meant that Mackensen's advance closed, closed down in the last week of September. He would later claim that if he had had a single intact German division, his results would have been far more impressive. At the end of September, though, the Bulgarians and Mackinson would be more concerned with the Romanian attack led by Averescu. Averescu presented detailed plans for this attack on September 17th. The goal was to launch a two-pronged attack into Dobruja, with one prong coming from the north and another from the east and across the Danube, south of Bucharest. To launch this attack would be a total of 15 divisions, the largest force that would be put under the command of a single Romanian general for the entire war. The preparations for this attack were impressive. Here is Glenn E. Torrey from his book The Romanian Battlefront in World War I. Quote, in less than two weeks, under the prodding of Avarescu and the commission, impressive preparations were completed. Ten kilometers of roads constructed, 250 boats and other pontoon materials delivered via railroad and horse cart from the Danube Delta. Telephone and telegraph lines, some double, installed, along with equipment to lay an underwater cable and additional heavy shore artillery, mines, and barricades assembled near the crossing point. End quote. The question would be whether or not these preparations would be enough. The operation would come to be called the Flamonda Maneuver, because it would cross the Danube near the town of Flamonda. The attack would begin shortly after Averescu asked for final confirmation of his plans from Romanian high command on September 30th, with the start time pinned for 10pm that night. It was at this time that the divisions that would be first to cross the river, namely the 10th division, began moving to its crossing points. Just five hours later, the first units would be across the river. Once on the other side, they began to spread out and enlarge the beachhead, which allowed more units to cross. The Bulgarians were shocked and very concerned when they learned what was happening. While they did not expect the Romanians to attack in this manner, Mackinson remained mostly unconcerned. There was a German infantry division just 48 hours away and already moving in that direction via train, and Mackinson believed that this and other forces in the area would be more than enough to keep the Romanians bottled up in their bridgehead. He, w- he would end up being correct, because while it started out so well, the invasion would quickly begin to unravel. The infantry who had moved across the river had only carried two days of food with them, and this meant that establishing a firm supply line was critical, both to keep those units supplied and to bring more men over to expand the invasion. These supplies would come across, at least initially, on a pontoon bridge that would be thrown across the river. However, the very next day, the bridge, still under construction, came under fire from German aircraft. These attacks would stop after nightfall, and the bridge would be completed in the dark. However, it did represent a delay, and a delay that would be more costly due to the weather. Overnight, a powerful weather system would move through the area, causing high winds and waves, which would damage the bridge. On the next day, the attacks would resume, only this time it would come from the form of Austro-Hungarian river boats who moved up the river to within a few hundred meters of the bridge. From this location, they would fire on the bridge, and those trying to move across it with machine guns before dropping some floating mines and leaving the area. The damage to the bridge caused by all of these problems was bad enough, but it also badly eroded Romanian morale. With the entire operation at risk due to the bridge problems, there were two options. The Romanians could continue the attack with the troops available, in what little they could get across the bridge, or they could just give up and pull back. Initially, they hoped to find a middle ground by reducing the plans for an attack to just the hope of holding on to the bridgehead for future operations. However, on October 3rd, with the disaster unfolding in Transylvania, that we will discuss next week, Averescu was told to bring everybody back across the river and to send two divisions north as soon as possible. The fact that they pulled the plug early on the operation meant that casualties were light, and only a small amount of artillery and supplies had to be left south of the Danube. In some ways, and this is weird to say, this failure was the best possible outcome for the Romanians. If the bridge had been intact a few more days, thousands of troops may have been across the river. If at that point the bridge had been destroyed, they may have all been killed or captured by the enemy. So overall, the fantastically named Flamanda maneuver turned into mostly just a waste of time, and not much else. We now shift back to Transylvania, and the Romanian troops which we discussed last episode, who had crossed the Carpathians in the opening months of the war or opening days, of the war. In this area, the Romanians had done little, except for advance away from their supply depots in Romania to take up positions in Transylvania. After this was accomplished, many of the troops were sent to the south to reinforce the front there. This teed those that remained for the German and Austrian counterstroke, which is what we will discuss for the rest of this episode. Almost without exceptions, things were about to go very, very bad for the Romanians, although not as bad as they could have gone. So let's talk about why that was. Last episode, we discussed that Falkenhayn would play a critical role in the attacks against Romania, and that would start with the Battle of Cebu. Cebu was in the middle of the Romanian First Army's front, but it was a vulnerable position due to the fact that after the Romanians had moved through the various mountain passes, they had not done a great job of connecting all of their units together. This meant that the units at Sibiu had 50 kilometers or more of open air on either of their flanks. The only saving grace was that these areas that were open were very rugged terrain, which the Romanians were counting on to prevent any enemy movement through them. Fortunately for Falkenhayn, and the Germans and Austrians, they had the Alpine Corps, which was made up of Germany's top mountain troops. These men trained for this exact scenario— moving quickly through mountainous terrain to give them an advantage over an enemy who either could not match this movement or did not expect it to be possible. Falkenhayn sent them forward to recon the route that would be used, to maybe get behind the Romanian forces to see if they would be able to move quickly through the terrain. They decided that they could execute the movement, however, they would not be able to take any vehicles, heavy equipment, or a lot of supplies with them. This was seen as an acceptable sacrifice, and Falkenhayn sent them forward with the goals of both getting around the Romanians and then preventing their retreat through the mountain pass. If they were able to do these two things, it's likely that the Romanian forces at Cebu would have been completely destroyed. As the mountain troops moved around the flanks, the main force of the Ninth Army launched a frontal assault against the positions at Cebu, The plan was for both of these attacks to fall at complementary times, for the frontal attack to throw the Romanians into retreat, only for the troops to then run directly into the Alpine blocking forces. Neither of these would end up happening. The frontal assault would actually be a failure on the first day, with the Romanians able to launch some pretty nasty counterattacks. These counterattacks were costly, but they allowed the Romanians to hold onto their lines mostly intact for the first day. As for the passes, the mountain troops were unable to close the pass completely. However, they were able to get in some good positions that would allow them to interdict but not prevent movement through the area. On the next day, the frontal attacks were renewed and the Romanian positions were reduced but not broken. Then finally, on the third day, things began to change. Even though the Alpine troops had not been able to close down the pass, a rumor began to circulate through the Romanian units that they had been able to occupy it and close it down. These troops knew, just as we know today, how absolutely screwed they would have been if the pass was blocked, and so panic began to spread, at which point the retreat began. As all of the troops moved towards the pass, they were first met by the Alpine Corps who tried to slow them down. They did everything that they could, but there was only so much they could do against the masses of troops who were pushing pushing through the passes. By the end of the afternoon on the 29th, with no signs of the retreat slowing, and some Romanian units beginning to launch counterattacks against them, the Alpine troops were forced to retreat, and they were out of ammunition anyway. Overall, the retreat was a success. Most of the men and artillery were able to move back into the passes and were on their way to Romanian territory. It was, however, the beginning of the end of Romanian occupation of Transylvania. After taking care of the troops at Sibiu, Falkenhayn was able to shift his attention to the east, where the next set of Romanian troops were waiting. Here again, he would try to prevent the troops from reaching the mountain passes, and once again he would fail. All along the front, the Romanian troops began to retreat, and by October 9th, the 2nd Army had fully retreated back into the mountains, and by, and by October 11th, all of the Romanian troops had moved back into Romanian territory. It had only been 40 days since they triumphantly advanced, and already they had been expelled. Averescu was sent north to try and combat the rampant defeatism that was sweeping through the Romanian lines. However, it was more than just the army that was panicking. In Bucharest, plans had been put in place to begin loading all of the government documents for evacuation to Moldovia, which was not exactly a great show of confidence in the army. Here in two episodes, after we take a quick trip to Vimy, we will find out if they should have had confidence in the army. And spoilers, for once, the Romanian government was right to be concerned. This is Carl on his motorcycle. Let's ride till we run out of gas. And this is Carl off his motorcycle. Balsa wood is very different than Teak. People confuse the two. On his motorcycle. Hey! Check out that view! Off his motorcycle. Let's do puzzles in the break room. On. Look at all that open road! Off. Look how long my fingernails are getting. You're better on your bike. Progressive helps keep you on it. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.